We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium mead station, so head over to edge.org.au for more info. My name is Ollie Dove, and appropriately for my surname, we're going to be talking about birds today. But before we do, I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which we're recording, the Palawa and Pakana people. As Megan and I record on two ends of Luchawida, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you're listening from as well. On behalf of us and those of you listening at home, I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. So today is a very special episode in that it is actually part one of a double bill. So at the University of Tasmania, the College of Sciences and Engineering have recently released the 2022 College Awards and Celebratory Events. One of the awards goes to current higher degree by research candidates. And over the next two weeks, we're going to hear from the two winners. So today we have Megan Grant, who is tuning in from Launceston up in the north of Tasmania. Megan is in the Adrift Lab at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. And I'm super stoked to have her on today because... It's great to have another seabird nerd in the show. So thank you so much for coming on and for being here. Well, being here uh, metaphorically as you, I look at you across in Zoom land. Thanks so much, Ollie, for having me on board. It's an absolute pleasure to be back. I mean, mm. I was here, here a couple of years ago, but um, that was when I first started my PhD. So back here at the tail end of my PhD. It's good for us that you enjoyed it so much that you were willing to come back on. That's a good sign. We like to hear that. Since it's been quite a while since we've had you on and our listeners might need a little recap, we're going to go back to the very beginning of your scientific career. So how did you end up doing a PhD? Oh, gosh, that is um, such a... It's it's not exactly an easy question to um, answer because there's so many layers to it, I suppose. so I did my uh, undergrad at at IMAS, um, and I did a Bachelor of Applied Science in the Marine Environment, and I actually studied fisheries management, so uh, how to properly manage wild catch fisheries, um, which is completely different to what I'm doing now. And then when I got to the end of my degree, uh, I decided that perhaps fisheries management wasn't really for me, so I started looking at honours projects in um, a variety of different topics and I had been really interested in plastic pollution um, and seabirds for quite some time. I actually fell in love with the seabirds while on a field trip during my undergrad. We used to have like the um, albatross follow along behind the boat and I just, I I loved them. Um, uh, So I started, yeah, looking for um, projects and I just so happened to stumble across Dr. Jennifer Lavers um, and I got in contact with her and she said, "Uh, yeah, I have a project available, um, but we leave in like three weeks. Are you available? And I was like, whoa, um, that's a lot. I've only just finished my honours project. Um, But I said yes. And three weeks later, I was heading out to a really remote island off the coast of Port Hedland in um, northern Western Australia 
and um, I spent um, a couple of days on that island uh, studying brown boobies, which are a pantropical um, species of seabird, and looking at how they incorporate plastics within their nests. Um, I, of course, finished that project and it all went really well. And when I got to the end of that, I thought, you know what, let's just stay on and do a PhD. Um, <laughs> that sounds like an amazing honours project that sort of has exactly what you want from an honours, a bit of everything. And were you able to keep that going in your PhD? Did you have lots of fieldwork opportunities? Yeah, so um, I've been really lucky with my PhD. Um, so my work is based out on Lord Howe Island, um, which is roughly about 500, 600 kilometres off the coast of um, Sydney um, in the Tasman Sea. Um, and I've been fortunate to go out there, uh, gosh, three or four times now um, for my PhD. I've seen photos of Lord Howe Island and it just looks absolutely unreal. As field sites go, it's very, not luxurious, but it just so beautiful, like almost incomprehensible beautiful. So what is it like when you're there? What sort of accommodation are you staying in? Uh, it's, it's it's interesting that you um, you started off by saying it looks really like luxurious and a lot of it is luxurious. Um, I like to liken Lord Howe with, like the the rich people's place to go for like so instead of like you know how like young people go to Bali mm-hmm. and and they have a great time there um but I feel like a lot of rich Australians go to Lord Howe Island instead um because it's kind of the same vibe but it just sort of like steps it up a couple of notches and there's some there's some incredible places that you can stay on the island that go for over a grand a night. Um, of course, I don't stay there because <laughs> um, I think you would know that, uh, you know, we have to fund all of our own field work and it can be very pricey um, and grants are really hard to come by. So um, we're lucky that there's a um, there is a field station or a re- research station based on Lord Howe Island uh, and it's it's pretty basic but um, you know as far as research stations go it's it's not so bad you know there's um three or four bedrooms a couple of bathrooms and a main sort of like communal kitchen area and then there's a small lab based off to one side as well and um, you know the labs you know the labs fairly basic but for the work that we do um, it you know it gets the job done so mm-hmm. you know lots of people go out to Lord Howe Island for research so that's I guess that's why it's there because you know it's not just the seabirds that people study it's um, it's the you know all the endemic plant species and the huge variety of you know invertebrates and um, for for years and years and years, they had they had um, invasive rats. So there was people studying the rats, and it's an absolute researcher's paradise, I suppose, because mm-hmm. there's so many things that you can look, look at and study. That's so cool. Do you find that in the field station, there's often people from different fields there at the same time, or is it sort of because I mean, seabirds have their breeding cycle, so a lot of work happens at a particular time of year. But then, is it just sort of overtaken by seabird? Um, researchers or is there always a bit of a variety there in the past when I've been it's it's mostly taken up by um the team that I'm with um because I mean so when we went in April and May there were uh six of us so uh, we took up the entire research station um and then the previous year um again it was mostly just us um but we did have some some of the the rat team come and stay as well. So we shared it with them. 
but a lot of the times that I go, it's just it's just like, you know, the, the Adrift Lab team. Awesome. Well, stick with us listeners for part two as we delve into a bit more of what exactly it is that Megan goes to Lord Howe to study. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about seabirds with Megan Grant from the University of Tasmania from the Adrift Lab. So we were just talking about Lord Howe Island and what it's like to be there to work and to study the birds. So what exactly is your PhD topic on? All right, so um, I am looking at how seabirds can influence their terrestrial environments. Uh, so seabirds are really influential um, for their terrestrial environments where they breed and nest and roost. Uh, and they're influential beca- because they bring nutrients uh, from the marine environment back to their these terrestrial areas, um, primarily through their guano, um, so their poo, um, but also from other inputs such as feathers and eggshells um, and even, you know, food remains that they might regurgitate. Uh and these nutrients, um, which are predominantly nitrogen and phosphorus, but also um, things like potassium and calcium and, you know, sodium and so many things, basically, um, they, you know, combine together and act as a, an amazing fertiliser for the soils within the, the seabird colonies. Uh, and we often see far-reaching um, positive impacts of the seabirds on the surrounding environment. So we'll see like increased plant growth, um, a greater variety of um, vegetation species, increases in invertebrate abundance, uh, all, all sorts of things. Um, so that's one aspect of my PhD that I'm looking at. So I'm looking at how influential uh, the flesh-footed shearwaters, or, or mutton birds as they're also known, are on the Lord Howe Island um, ecosystem in the particular areas where they breed. Um, as an extension to that, um, we're looking at how they may negatively impact the areas that they breed. So the flesh-footed shearwaters, uh, they ingest huge quantities of plastic um, and, you know, there's been studies that show that they can ingest, you know, 100, 200 pieces. Uh, the maximum um, amount of pieces that um, the Drift Lab team has found was 267 or maybe it's 276. Mm-hmm. 276 pieces, um, which is just phenomenal. It's like it's a crazy amount of, of plastic and, you know, that, that plastic weighed approximately like 15% of the bird's body weight, which is just, it'd be like, you know, you or me eating, what, like eight or nine kilos thereabouts, maybe 10, who knows, like a lot of plastic. So just trying to imagine like having your stomach full of that much plastic. Um, and the problem with this is um, apart from the the obvious things like starvation and, you know, low, low nutrition and, and that those sort of health effects, um, plastics contain a lot of chemicals and they also have plastics adhered to their surface from being in the marine environment. And these chemicals um, are a variety of things, uh, but I'm mainly looking at uh, heavy metals, so things such as mercury and cadmium and um, chromium. And these metals that are adhered to the plastics, they potentially can um, leach from the plastics that they've ingested and then go through the bird system and then uh, deposit them 
within the guano in the same manner that that, that, that they deposit the nutrients. So, um, you know, my second chapter of my PhD is looking at what kinds of heavy metals are we finding in the guano itself, but also in the soils and um, the vegetation and the soil invertebrates. Uh, and so far, we, while this, this chapter is almost finished, uh, so I can't really uh, tell you too much information, <laughs> um, but so far we've found elevated levels of all metals in the colony soils um, mm-hmm. in comparison to the control sites that don't have any seabirds. So this is potentially quite damaging um, for the Lord Howe Island ecosystem. My very last chapter, uh, which will appear as my third chapter in my thesis, but was in fact the first chapter that I did. So I was so excited by it. Um, I was looking at the amount of plastics that the birds deposit on Lord Howe Island. Um, so this is so we're not looking at the guano anymore. This is looking um, a little bit bigger picture, I suppose. So the these, the freshwater chewers can bring plastics to the island and deposit them by uh, either regurgitation. So they could regurgitate a bolus, which is like a, a pellet containing all the indigestible parts of their diet. Um, so the plastics could be in that. Um, the plastics could spill out when they're feeding their chicks. Or um, in some cases, um, and this, this is quite sad, the birds will die on the island uh, and then when their, uh, when their bodies decompose, the plastics will sort of spill out. So I wanted to estimate approximately how much plastic the birds are depositing on the island every single year. Um, and this one's already published, so I can, so I can tell you all my results. Um, and we estimated that they are depositing roughly 689,000 pieces every single year which is approximately 165 kilos. And that's every single year. That's almost sort of incomprehensible or inconceivable to even imagine that amount, especially with seabirds. They're not particularly large animals, but the fact that they're bringing that quantity. Yeah, it's it's wild. So we, we worked out roughly how much plastic that is per bird. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's, there's approximately 22,000 shearwater pairs on Lord Howe Island and we worked out that it's roughly 30 pieces per breeding pair you know and and the birds are roughly the size of a silver gull um and that's you know it's a phenomenal amount of plastic um, for a bird of that size. Where would this research go on to next because presumably you'd want to mitigate these effects or stop it happening but you can't exactly do that overnight so what is the next step in the process? Uh, that's always it's like the it's like the golden question, I suppose. Um, you know, everyone wants their PhD to to mean something, I suppose, and it's it's so hard to to you know to get some change occurring. And I, I think you would probably understand that quite well. Is that you know I it, I would love to you know solve this somehow. Um, but I guess it, it's such a it's such a hard problem and I don't think there's any easy way to do that. I think at least as a starting point, and this is something that I'm quite proud of, is that we now know that the birds are depositing lots and lots of plastics and we know and we know that they're also depositing heavy metals um within their colonies and at times quite high amounts. And 
no one's so no one's studied these birds before and, and definitely not in this context. So I guess now we know. So that's at least that's a good starting point. So I guess from now we can maybe we can start trying to mitigate this in, in some way, I suppose. Um I, I don't quite know exactly how that would happen. But um yeah, I, I think I think it's 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 yeah, it's really hard and it and it's you know, this this occurs for seabird populations all around the world. Um, you know, for for all that are you know ingesting plastics, and you know, even for those that don't ingest plastics, seabirds are often at the top of the food chain, so they often have quite high levels of um, you know heavy metals through bioaccumulation. So they'll also be depositing you know these metals in their colonies. So it's, it's so it's occurring all around the world, um, and I think. You know, it, it's – for Lord Howe Island in particular, like Lord Howe Island is is a World Heritage listed site. It has, um, you know, reserves and parks and it's and it's heavily, heavily protected in terms of its, its environment. But, you know, all of these protections we have in place don't do anything to stop the pollution that's happening by the seabirds – you know, they're, they're, the, the protections are there to help the seabirds, but the seabirds aren't really, you know, they're not, you know, re, um, repaying the favour, I suppose. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's, I, I think we just have to acknowledge that the seabirds are and can be quite damaging to their environments. Um, but how do we solve that? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> Incredible to think of it from that aspect as well, because you always assume a wild species, they're the ones that are suffering. You don't really think of the, not that it's their fault at all, but the negative impacts that they could be having on the ecosystem. But stay with us, listener, for part three, as we look into how we can communicate these things to the general public and what it means on a broader scale. Hello again, listeners. You're tuned into That's What I Call Science. I am Ollie Dove and I'm joined with Megan Grant from the University of Tasmania. And we're talking about seabirds, pollution, and while it seems like an impossible problem to solve, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no optimism in the field. But at Beaker Street Festival last year in 2021, members of the Adrift Lab put on a talk for the general public to talk about how... um, how it can affect the researcher working in a field that seems quite well that is upsetting and can you can take that home with you and it would be hard to separate yourself from it I unfortunately couldn't make it to the talk but it, it seemed like such an important thing to talk to the general public about so how is your experiences working in a field that could quite affect you on a personal level yeah, it's it's such a hard thing. I think um, to put it to, I, I suppose, like I'll, I'll sum it up really quickly. What what I sort of talked about um, at Baker Street is that you know, growing up, I always always wanted to have kids, and I really wanted to be a mother. Um, you know, something I always dreamed of. And as I got older, and I started learning about things like climate change and overpopulation, and uh, you know, plastic pollution, and, and just pollution in general. I slowly started to realize that maybe maybe it's not actually a good idea to have children 
at this current point in time? You know, what what's the world going to be like in, you know, 20 years or, you know, what, what you know, is, is it going to be, a you know, a livable world? Um, and, you know, I... I began to think, you know, maybe maybe I won't be having kids anymore. Uh, and it's been a really hard thing to come to terms with um, because, like I said, I, I, my, you know, growing up for at least the first 15 years of my life, I was like, I'm definitely having kids. It's what I want. Uh, and now that that idea is just sort of, you know, dissipated as, as I, you know, learn more about everything that's happening in the world and yeah it's 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 really sad um and trying to like look on the, the upside I suppose um you know there's there's always there's always things that we you know we can do to make the world a, a little bit of a better place for ourselves and for each other um and you know you you may feel like you just you know one small drop in the ocean and you know you, you pretty much are but there there are lots of things that you can do to um, make everything a little bit better so you know people always harp on about the whole like you know don't don't use plastic bags bring your own reusable bag and like fully support that that's amazing and there's lots obviously lots of other plastic free alternatives um, you know and there's it's not just like the plastic side of things you could you know, reduce your, your car usage or, um, you know, you know, walk more or, you know, swap from, if, if, you know, if it's within your means, swap from, um, swapping to solar panels or, um, there's, I mean, there's, there's a whole range of things that you can do to make everything just like a little bit better, I suppose. And I try and, I suppose I try and focus on those things. Mm. Um, yeah, it's hard though. <laughs> would be incredibly hard and thank you for sharing that with us that was a very personal story to open with and to be able to be that level of vulnerable with our listeners and with me and to just sort of think of yourself in such a holistic manner in the general scheme of things and it's very easy as a PhD student (laughs) to become disillusioned with okay great I've found out something it's going to go in a journal that's going to go in a metaphorical shelf no one's going to know about this But what experiences have you had with science communication and what drives you to push for it? Uh, Yeah, so (laughs) science communication, um, I think, is really important. Uh, So, you know, there was was Beaker Street Festival. Um, That was a really great opportunity. Um, I've been on – I've been really lucky that I've been on a handful of other um, podcasts um, and they're always really great as well. Uh, And I – I always, I always really love talking with my friends as well, and you know, friends of friends, um, because, you know, I, I, you know, it's it's always nice seeing be, seeing my friends being able to change the way that they do things. Like I've had um, some of my friends come back and be like, oh, you know, because of what you said, I no longer use, uh, I don't know, Glad Wrap, or um, I'd never buy, you know, takeaway coffee cups, or. Um, you know, like there's lots of like small things and it's always so rewarding um, hearing that because I guess in like a small way, like I've instigated that change um, or I've influenced them or inspired them to make that change. And 
yeah, that's always super rewarding and I love that. Um, and I love just being able to, you know, talk about my own research in, um, you know, in, in, in like a really um, casual, I suppose, uh, environment. As, yeah. So it's, it's, it's nice to be able to do that and, you know, have that opportunity to do that. Um, so sorry to my friends. You probably hear me talk about it all the time. But <laughs> I'm sure they love to hear about it. And congratulations on your award as well. So it's good to see that your the work that you're doing is being recognised. What does the award mean to you, having received it as an HDR candidate? Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. It was, I, when I first saw the email, I was just sitting at my desk. Um, I was having actually a pretty bad day. I fucked. There's lots of stuff going on with one of my chapters. Um, and I got this email and I just I, – I think I sat there at my computer with my mouth open, like gaping for a solid probably like five minutes because I was so shocked. Um, and I was like, oh, this can't be real. Like I – and this is, okay, is going to sound really stupid, um, but uh, I <laughs> – I have crazy imposter syndrome um, and I know a lot of PhD students go through this as well um, and I remember just thinking like, nah, surely they've given it out to the wrong person or like I'm not deserving of this. Um, but also sort of thinking back of all of the things that I've done, all of the things that I've done during my my PhD, um, you know, when I really – if, if I start to like list them out, you know, they are – quite a few things that I am super proud of and um, it is so nice to be able to get that recognition for all of these things and I also I really like that so I mean I'm based in Launceston as you said earlier and Launceston and the north of the state and the other like campuses in the north of the state often are somewhat forgotten about I suppose um, so it was really rewarding to get that award as a Launceston based student um, so that was really nice as well. It got me really excited, really excited. <laughs> Yay. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that you do take pride in some of the work that you've done because I think we're told the narrative of to be humble or not to share it particularly. But no, you've done incredible work and it's you deserve this award. So thank you so much for coming on today, Megan. And thank you listeners for tuning in to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you STEM-related content each week and we hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did talking to Megan. If you loved the show and want to get in touch, please search That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and also go check out Adrift Lab. Uh, I was scouring their website earlier and it's, it looks great. You can learn more about Megan and her team's work there. So my name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to thank my guests one last time for coming on and thank you all for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.